0: everyone. This is our latest edition of The Lion's Den. I have with me Larry Reinhars and Jane Messina from Woodbridge International. They're one of nine investment banks that we work with in our strategic advisory network as part of our business owners services and solutions department. And we're going to talk today about private equity and what private equity is, how it works. So a little story before we get into it. Just so you know, you know, someone comes up with an idea and they say, you know what, I think I could make money doing this. And so they use their own funds, they kind of bootstrap this company. And you know, many of these don't succeed, but the ones that do, they move into the next round where they start raising money from investors. It could be family and friends. It could be angel investors. And again, you know, many of these don't succeed, but the ones that do, then they move into the next round of financing, where typically that can be venture capital funds. And again, some of these succeed, and that's where we get to private equity. Private equity likes to see companies that are actually on a J, the starting J-curve. They actually help the company get into what's called the J-curve, which is pretty rapid growth. And some of those may end up actually going public, like the Googles of the world and whatnot. Some of them actually will sell to other private equity companies. So that's kind of the history and the, the way this whole thing works in the world of companies. Larry, any, uh, any addition or comments on
1: that? Yeah, story? I mean, uh, that's great. That's a good summary, Todd. A lot of the companies that we see, it was pretty much their own money. Sometimes they have outside investors. More often than not, they don't. But, you know, the point is the private equity groups, I mean, there's a trillion dollars under management and if they don't spend the money they lose their jobs so they're motivated but their objective is to do exactly what you said scale grow companies cuz the larger the EBITDA the larger the multiple right and the time horizon is 3 to 7 years and that's the game they're in right so, um, yeah
0: excellent okay and so jane what can a business owner do to prepare for a sale of their company
2: Well, I I would say there's really four key actions that they could take to prepare. The first is it's really important if they haven't converted their financial statements to accurate accrual-based financial statements, they need to do that. That's what private equity or any buyer is going to require, that quality financial statement. They also need to prepare mentally for the transition. It's a big decision for them to make. So if they're deciding that they want to sell 100% of their business, they really need to envision what retirement looks like so that they can get excited about the process. It'll allow the process to go a lot more smoothly and enjoyable for them. If they're going to sell just part of their business, then envision where the additional resources from a partner can take the business. Get excited about it. If they haven't delegated some of their responsibilities to, I'd say, key management, they should start doing so. The buyer is not going to look favorably if the operations of the company is really dependent on the owner, so delegate. They should also consider, if they are going to sell 100%, consider staying on board for, say, 12 months to 18 months to allow for a smoother transition, and then lastly, Look at their company as a marketable security and not just as the source of income to support their lifestyle. And what I mean by that is, you know, a private equity firm or any buyer is going to use their EBITDA, their earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortization as the the measure of the true cash flow of the company. They value it based on a multiple on that EBITDA. So if the business owner begins to really hone in on their EBITDA on a monthly basis, the more they improve it, the greater the value they'll get from the business.
0: That's great. And yeah, Mm. you bring up a good point that it's not always just an outright sale. Mm -hmm. It could be a venture, joint venture, right? Correct. To propel the company uh, further along in the the growth path. Mm -hmm. Quite Terrific. And then, Jane, when do you think is the ideal time to sell?
2: Uh, I'd answer that in a c- couple different ways. One, from the business owner's perspective, what we see is, you know, sometimes it's a little counterintuitive. The, the business owner is like making, you know, money hand over fist and they're thinking, why should I give up this income? Well, that does mean that the company is really busting at the seams and that's what a buyer is going to be looking for. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's that they're not enjoying going into work anymore. You know, maybe they were the creative and all of a sudden they're bogged down with the administrative work. Begin to consider life after that. Maybe, again, that's, that's somebody who wants to stay on board to remain the creative but give all the other stuff to the new partner. Sometimes it's health concerns for themselves or a spouse. And then what we're seeing quite often is that, the owner is just ready to start a new phase of life. They've dedicated their whole life to growing the business. Maybe they've sacrificed some family time and now they wanna make up for it by spending time with their grandchildren. But overall, what the business has to look like is that revenues are going up, as you said, that J curve, right? Going up, demand is really strong and the future is even brighter with the additional resources a partner can bring.
0: Excellent. Mm-hmm. OK, and then, Larry, how does a business owner know if selling is their best option?
1: Uh, that's a great question. You know, if the owner needs to maximize cash at closing from the transaction, if they do financial planning with you and they're looking at how much money do I need from this sale to fund the rest of my life yeah, and they need a certain number and they need to maximize that then selling to a third party is likely the best option, right? Uh If they don't, if they have more financial flexibility and they can fund the rest of their life without the sale of the business, then there's other options that are, you know, so there's ESOPs, there's doing an internal deal, there's gifting it to your kids, there's even gifting the whole business to a charity. Yeah, definitely would encourage business owners to flush out those options before they decide on a path because we've had situations where it's the eleventh hour, we're closing a deal, and the owner scratches the head. What what else is there? What other options? Mm-hmm. So it definitely makes sense to flush that those out before you pursue a definitive path.
0: Right. Get going early on that one. Okay. Great. And here's another one. What's the number one reason that a deal doesn't get done?
1: Well. So 2020, in the pandemic, 70% of the clients we had, their performance was way off, their financial performance was way off, it was declining. Um, That's probably the number one reason a deal doesn't happen because nobody wants to catch a falling knife. Right. So now what we did though, I mean, and people knew why, I mean, it was a pandemic, everybody was living through it. But once those businesses started to recover, And they're trending now at a level where we can get the owners the money they want. We just repackage them and we bring them back. But I would say declining financial performance is the number one reason. And some people, it's a little bit counterintuitive. Once they've hired us, they feel, well, okay, I don't have to keep pushing. I don't have to hustle. You know, it's a six-month process. And people are looking at how you're performing now and what the outlook is. So if you do decide to do this, it's like you have two jobs. You have to work yeah. with us and you have to act like you're not selling. You right. keep the pedal to the metal.
0: Can't so. take your foot off the gas. Right. And, and, and curious, did you see a lot of pivots in these companies to different models? or?
1: Well, I think what everybody did, and we did it too, they really took a hard look at their P&L. And and a lot of the changes they made, and a lot of it, if it was a service business, it was staff, it was people. Most of them, they said, you know, we made cuts that we should have made before the pandemic. Right. And we realized it was really because culturally they weren't a fit. But you just use something like that to make the hardest. Dis- Unfortunately, you do. And, and we were guilty of that, too. Right? I,
0: yeah. No. So, okay. Everybody takes a real hard look at the P&L when things aren't going as good as they have been. Right. And they should be looking at it all along. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jane, what factors slow down a deal?
2: Well, I would say what Larry just said with regard to the declining financial performance. It doesn't mean that the company can't be sold, right? It just means that if the financials are starting to decline, then what we do is we pause the campaign Mm -hmm. just, pause it, wait for whatever caused the deterioration in the financial condition to you know, rectify itself and then go back out to market. So I would say that's really the number one reason. Another, which is very critical also, is if the business owner maybe hires the wrong m and or investment banker. Mm-hmm. Right. If the MA attorney or the investment banker, I'll say, are used to working with companies valued at 3 to 50 million or greater, and their business is worth 30 million, which is still a very nice value, right? But yeah. it's 30 million, that learning curve that the MA and the investment banker have to go on to understand that marketplace slows the progress of the deal down. And then lastly, submitting timely accurate accrual financial statements that is critical you know that uh, will slow down due diligence so that's what they really need to do to prepare for the sale get it in good shape beforehand
0: yeah you know, where the rubber meets the road starts right. with the accounting people and the bookkeeper all mm-hmm. the way down to the bookkeeper right
2: exactly critical
0: <laughs> member of that team yep okay larry you know, it's interesting here in Marin County, a lot of companies came out of 2008-9, the great financial crisis. They became business owners, and now they're getting to a point where they're in their, their late 60s or early 70s, and they're like, you know what, it's time to retire, right? I think I want to sell this business. And and in the past, I've gotten calls from clients. They said, hey, I sold my business. And I say, well, how did you do that? And They said, well, some guy called me up and said he would pay this much for it. Well, that's not the best way, is it?
1: now you know it's uh natural especially if they haven't been approached a lot over the years then you get somebody calling wow like somebody wants me but you know it's interesting probably 40 50 of the people that hire us are already talking to buyers uh-uh. and some to the point where they have bids uh-uh. and most often what happens we go to work we go to the world we market them and most of the time those buyers they were talking to Go away because now they understand they're going to have to pay fair market and they don't want to compete with other buyers. Mm-hmm. Or if they stay in, they sharpen their pencils. We've been in business 30 years. Up until four months ago, we had never sold a company to a buyer that our client was already speaking with before they hired us.
0: Interesting.
1: Up until four months ago, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And
0: mm-hmm. what
1: ended up, the way we structured the engagement was that, and it was a really good strategic buyer. And the value was good, but the cash closing was really light. And we said to the buyer, look, we're going to the world in about a month. If we can negotiate something that makes sense, you know, and we're confident we'll get funded and closed, we won't go to market. We'll get it done with you. And if we do that, our client will get a discount on our fee. Right. Right? Um, We couldn't move them up. They would not move up. Finally, we went to market. We got 11 other bids. All of a sudden, now they start to get in the range that they need to get uh, to. Uh Uh And we closed. And so, you know, if you look at it, we increased the cash component by $7 million, and they paid us a $700,000 fee. So it really was only because they saw the tension of the auction, and they knew we weren't playing around. Right. So without doing that, you're just not going to know what the world will pay.
0: Yeah. And... You guys are international. You draw from an international yeah. um, mm-hmm. potential yeah. buyer list.
1: Twenty percent of the companies we've sold in the U.S. and Canada are from a buyer outside North America. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah, that's a great fact. So, Jane, what's the difference between a business broker and an investment banker?
2: Yeah, you know, I get asked that question quite a bit, and let me answer the question just in a very simple term the The key differences between the two really lie in who they market and kind of how they market. So, for a business broker, they will deal with smaller companies. I'd say, uh, you know, on the high side, they're producing five million in revenues uh-huh. on down. Uh-huh. They, um, t- the buyers tend to be individuals rather than institutions, and they value the company based off of a multiple of an income stream that the owner has been receiving. Uh-huh. They post it on websites with the price tag attached to it. But an investment banker, on the other hand, so they're dealing with larger companies. Really, at a minimum, they have to produce revenues of $5 million on up. And they go directly to the buyers mm-hmm. who are either strategic or financial institution and corporations. You know, so that's that's who they go to. They sell it through an auction, and they allow the market to dictate the price. There's not a price tag that goes out. The market drives that price. And then during the process, they act more as advisors. They advise on how to structure the deal while the campaign's going on. They'll help the business owner with, you know, choosing the appropriate buyers to then interview. And during due diligence, the investment banker is gonna stay with the business owner, support them, keep the deal moving forward to ultimately get the best outcome for the client.
0: Excellent. Okay, and when, Larry, do you think it's better to hire a banker versus a broker or vice versa? Oh.
1: If the cash flow the company generates is below a million dollars, the net profit, it's probably more of a broker. Yeah. Um and bankers also, investment banks, in addition to selling companies, they do other things. You know, they'll they'll raise capital, they'll do fairness opinions. So if they need anything like that where it's raising capital or fairness opinions or IPO, that's more an investment banker. So I think it's size, mostly size. If it's a million of EBITDA up, you're going to start attracting institutional buyers, private equity groups, larger strategic right. buyers. And and those are better buyers because they're more experienced, they're better capitalized, and they're not going to freak out over every little thing they see in due diligence versus an individual that's putting all their money on the line and they haven't bought a business before.
0: And it's, okay. it's interesting. I actually was having a call with a bookkeeper who's in uh, my networking group, Shireen Botha, She's located in South Africa. You talk about international. And uh, she works with many of my CPA contacts. But we were talking about the difference between EBITDA and net income. And I'd love to hear your perspective. I know we're not you know, tax professionals, but how do you describe EBITDA?
1: Oh, well, I mean, the accounting definition, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, so the cash flow the business generates but then privately held businesses you know they're not looking to impress the irs right so what are you running through the business what personal items whether it's cars whether it's vacations whether it's country clubs whether it's compensation for family members that's above fair market right so if About there's pension a,
0: plans right if pension funding plans, retirement plans right
1: pension plans if they own the building and yep. there's rent that's not fair market. Yeah. So we go through all of that just to show the economics for a third party buyer. Right. Not the family running this business, a third party buyer. So right. in a lot of companies, they'll say, Well, my I'm not showing that much, but this, this, and this, that's okay. We'll work with you to readjust it. Mm-hmm. I will say the less adjustments, the better. Yeah. But we can help with that.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> you know? And also the compensation that the the founder or or ceo is taking right i mean you have to add that back in because that's going to go away
1: well that's that's it depends on if what they need to look at i'm providing these services for the company if i was going to be totally passive and hire somebody to do what i'm doing what do i have to pay pay somebody
0: right right Uh, okay got it all right and then last but not least what's happening in the market currently
1: I've been doing this 17 years and you know, 2009, 2010, we all got very spiritual. It was pretty brutal. But ever since then, it's been more of a seller's market. We started our company 30 years ago, representing buyers. They hire us to go out and find companies to acquire. The buyer was paying us. So our objective was to get the buyer the best deal. We stopped doing that business about five, six years ago because we were not getting traction there was nothing special or unique about saying, I have a buyer, Uh right? I mean, like, line up. So it's getting frothier and frothier. This year so far, we've sold 17 companies. We should sell another 10 to 15 companies by year-end. Wow. Um, so this will be better than last year. Last year was our best year in 30 years. Uh-huh. We sold 27. So this year we should sell 30, 35 companies. And the multiples, the deals are not happening slower. It's interesting. Like the first half of the year, we sold 13 companies and 11 of them got done in the second quarter as the stock market declined and interest rates went up. All right. And, and we had former clients calling us Whose deals got done last year saying, boy, I'm sure glad I got my deal done last year. <laughs> and I'm like, we're not seeing that, right? A, a lot of what drives our business, think of all the cash. I mean, there's a trillion dollars in private equity groups. Yeah. There's, I think, five and a half trillion on corporate balance sheets. And so they need to grow. And one right. of the ways they can grow is by a small growing company. And that's what the shortage is. The shortage, is good profitable businesses coming to market, like not money, that's not the
0: shortage, so. Fascinating, fascinating.
1: Yeah.
2: If I could add to yeah, that. please. You know, as Larry said, the, the market is really robust. We know that the window is open right now. We don't know when the, win, the window might start closing, but I really encourage business owners to begin the process of considering what am I going to do with the business? And I think a good place to start is to work with your advisor and have an assessment of value put on the company so that they know, all right, if I were to sell my business today, what would the market pay for it? It's a great foundation that the business owner and the advisor, their financial advisor can work with to determine what do I need for retirement to achieve all the goals that I have. Right. And so does that look like I should do it today because it's a figure that I thought was I'd never achieve or should I wait for five years and work towards that? So that's what I would encourage business owners to do. Just start taking the time to think about life after the business.
0: Indeed. And Mm -hmm. as part of my process of line wealth management, dynamic fiduciary wealth management, it's about gathering all that information and then coordinating with the other advisors in tax, legal, risk management, et cetera, legacy planning. This mm-hmm. all comes into account, but you're right. That asset for those business owners is, can be a substantial part of their net worth and you need to plan. And it doesn't happen with a phone call, I want to buy your business. It's, it's a <laughs> yeah. long-term process. It, it could be short in this kind of window right now, it maybe is a little shorter. But for many, many of the clients that I've worked with, it's been a three, four, five year kind of process hmm. just to get their head around the fact yeah, yeah. that they, they want to move along, you know? Exactly.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All and right. Our clients that, that have gone through this with the most amount of clarity are people that do some planning with somebody like you. I right. mean, they can help visualize it. for them. Right. right.
0: Exactly. All right. Anything else before we uh, close out our Lion Den episode?
1: No, thank you. We appreciate yes. your time.
0: No, mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on with me. I think the people who view this are going to have a new perspective on this whole world of private equity, and I really appreciate your help with that.
2: Terrific. Thanks. All right, guys. Thanks, Todd. Have a Thanks. great day. You too. All okay. right.
3: Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC member FINRA and SIPC. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions. Lion Wealth Management is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Lion Wealth Management and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Client Wealth Management and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.